Good morning, everybody. Working, there's a new uh, system they have here on this, the Podbean recording. So it takes a few seconds uh, for my voice to come in. So uh, just brand new this morning. So I was getting used to it. It's Sunday morning, March 21st. Is this the first day of spring? I believe this is the first day of spring. It was either yesterday or today. Um, but it's, uh, it's a good day. It's a day where I'm out this morning at, uh, my usual walk time, which is around 7.15 a.m. And my dog was up early today, ready to go. It was all I could do to help to stop him from barking to, uh, wake up everybody in the house. He was ready to go. So we're out walking together. I want to talk this morning about it's Sunday and I, on Sundays I try to try to do a little bit, uh, deeper kind of reflection. And I, I'm putting together lectures for tomorrow night and for Monday night, um, a lecture series that I'm going to do on voting rights in America. And uh, I'm just about done with putting together the content. And I want to speak about something I've been, think- I've been thinking about um, as part of the series. Um, if you're interested, you can sign up for these through our events page at Common Power. Um, it's listed on there for Monday and Tuesday, and it'll take you, the registration link will take you to the registration on Eventbrite. The series will be about the, the, the fight over voting that has been underway forever in this country. Uh, and I'm going to focus specifically on the last, uh, about 15 years with, um, the second lecture entirely focused on uh, right now, today. So here's what I think is what I've concluded, what I've learned, what, and what I figured out. And that's what these lectures are so valuable always to me to like figure out what I think um, and believe. This is it. The, the lineage of our leadership as a movement on voting rights has found new leaders. We have, the baton has been passed. And that lineage goes from um, the civil rights movement, and I'm gonna think about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. at the head of that, to John Lewis and his clarion moral leadership for decades since the voice of the conscience, uh, the voice of the, the conscience of the Congress, he's been called, he was called. And from Lewis to two others from Atlanta, Stacey Abrams and Reverend Raphael Warnock. And I think that this, this, this baton passing, this lineage and this reality of Abrams and Warnock is monumentally important for us as a society and for the power of the movement that we're, we're in the midst of right now to fight for the right to vote. So I want to talk about this, this legacy. So Martin Luther King Jr.'s um, father, known as Daddy King, to uh, to everybody who knew the Kings and in Atlanta, 
was a minister at Ebenezer Baptist Church. Ebenezer Baptist um, in Atlanta was the like the the highly educated um, African American congregation in the area, and Martin Luther King Jr. went to college at the age of 15 to Morehouse College in Atlanta, a college for men, for black men, that are part of a part of the incredible HBCUs that are that are present in Georgia. Um, and he, uh, he went to college there, graduated at the age of 19, um, got recognized for his preaching and intellect while he was there, went off to seminary in Philadelphia, Crozier Seminary, and, uh, and also to doctoral studies at Boston University. And then returned to um, the South to take a, a, uh, a pastoral a ministry position in Montgomery, Alabama in 1954 um, at what became Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. Dexter Avenue is right, right in the shadow of the state capitol in Montgomery, Alabama. And it was just remarkable that there was this incredibly powerful uh, church, African-American church, so close to this bastion of white supremacy, the capitol. Um, and around about three or four blocks away from there is another church in Montgomery, um, First, uh, First Baptist Church. Um, and there's two First Baptists in Montgomery. One is a white church and one is a black church. And um, the other church was headed up by Ralph Abernathy, who became one of King's, King's closest friend throughout his lifetime. King and Abernathy became these best friends and leaders of the civil rights movement. And of course, the bus boycott starts just a little while after King gets to Montgomery. And King is essentially drafted into being a leader of that movement. King eventually moves back to, to Atlanta, takes over the, past, the, the pastoral position at Ebenezer Baptist from his father, succeeds him there. Abernathy moves to uh, Atlanta as well, takes a, a ministry position as, in Atlanta as well, and their friendship continues forever. King's focus on nonviolence as the way to justice was unshakable and uh you know certainly there were differences of opinion in the civil rights movement about whether that was the way to go but his was unshakable and his voice his vision for how we could move forward this country's justice was uh cut through everything in this country and brought us to places we'd never been we know the story of Martin Luther King Jr. It's compelling. It's inspiring. Uh, it's it's a uh, it's relentless. It's indefatigable. One of King's uh, inner circle was a a man from Troy, Alabama. John Lewis. John Lewis wrote a letter to Dr. King and said, "I'd like to come and." you know, meet you and work with you. And I had a chance to meet. And Dr. King said, so you're the boy from Troy. 
Um, and that became the kind of phrase of love from King to Lewis, the boy from Troy. And Lewis became the, the tip of the spear for the civil rights movement. He, uh, grew up in very rural circumstances. Um, his, his memoir, um, what is it? Racing with the wind. I think it's the title, um, which I've read and talks about him growing up in very, very, um, rural existence. He take care, he took care of chickens and he would practice being a preacher for those, those, uh, those chickens. He went to, um, school in Nashville, Tennessee at a very small, um, religious college, um, American Baptist college in, um, Nashville. And there he met, um, a cluster of folks and he, with his moral force, became to the center of it that would, that would form the national nonviolence movement under the leadership of Reverend James Lawson. He would meet Diane Nash and Bernard Lafayette and James Bevel. Um, he would meet others who would go on to leadership in this country, um, including, I'm forgetting his name right now, but the, the man who would become uh, a mayor of Washington, D.C., um, and then eventually get into trouble, unfortunately. But he, went, he was there as well. It was just this incredible cluster of powerful leadership. And Lewis was part of the inner, over time became part of the inner circle of King, as did Bevel and Lafayette. Lewis had a famous position, which is after we've discussed anything, after they had discussed any topic, he would say, I'm going to march. I don't know about all of you, but I'm going to march. And he would march. And in Selma, 1965, which today is the day that the third march, there were three marches in Selma. The first was Bloody Sunday. The second was known as Turnaround Tuesday. And the third was the one that finally went the whole distance from Montgom uh, Selma to Montgomery. Started today. It took them five days to get to Selma, and it started today. They got national attention. Federal troops protected them. Um, but on the first march, uh, Lewis had been in Atlanta the night before at a at a meeting for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and they had a vigorous debate, as SNCC would, about whether or not the, mar the SNCC would be a co-sponsor of the march that was planned for the next day in Selma. This was the, the initial, the original march. And SNCC was mad at King. There were various, various, very real tensions within the movement. And SNCC was mad at King um, and they didn't want to support King and this march because the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which was King's leadership organization, they felt had stepped on the toes of SNCC and hadn't respected the model of organizing that SNCC had done. And so there was lots and lots and lots of challenges there. And they SNCC that night eventually voted to not co-sponsor the march on March 7th. They, they voted not to. Lewis was the chair, the chairman of SNCC, and he honored that position. And then he said at the end, um, well, 
I understand what Snick's position is, but I am going to march. And he drove through the night. Uh, I think it's three hours or so to get over to Selma and got there very early in the morning. And eventually they marched early afternoon that day. But he marched not as a member of SNCC. It was very clear that I'm not here representing SNCC. I'm marching on my own. And it was Lewis and Hosea Williams at the front of the line that went across the Selma, the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma. Lewis, for decades, became the leader of the fight to vote. John Lewis took over, a, a, won a congressional district in Atlanta in the mid-1970s and represented that district all the way until his death on July 17th, 2020. And it was Lewis, I remember Lewis's death the night he died. I had, was, had done a lecture that evening on... Uh, not sure which one it was on. I don't think it was this specific one was on voting. I think it was on how to win the election. Um, and at the end of it, someone put into the chat that John Lewis had just passed away. And I just said, oh, shit. And it was just a sad moment. The last moment that the last public um, appearance of Lewis had been in Washington, D.C., after the George Floyd protests, he went to Black Lives Matter Plaza and took it in, stood out there, looked around, took it in. He was he was given a lot of space because he had stage four pancreatic cancer. Um, so he was given a lot of physical distance because of the health concerns. And he was a warrior all the way to the end. Lewis's district. Um, is Clayton County. It's the sixth congressional district. And, uh, no, I'm sorry, the fifth, the fifth congressional district in Atlanta, in Georgia. And it was that county that was given the opportunity by the other counties in the state to be the votes that put Joe Biden in the lead on, uh, the morning the, the, the second morning after the election day in 2020, the other uh, other counties stopped counting uh, for the night and they let Clayton County keep counting. And it was Clayton that put Biden in the lead. Lewis's intern or had many interns, and one of them was John Ossoff, who's now senator of the United States. Youngest senator, first Jewish senator from the South since 1885. And Lewis's minister was Reverend Raphael Warnock. Warnock is now the pastor at Ebenezer Baptist, the spiritual home of Martin Luther King Sr. and Jr. and the King family. And Warnock is the, 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 the pastor there, and he continues to be the pastor. He has not taken leave. He continues to preach and to lead that congregation while he's minister. The, the, the spiritual legacy, the baton handing to each other of King, from King to Lewis to Warnock is exactly the kind of thing that is notable for how 
how movements are sustained and amplified. King went to Morehouse College. Lewis went to American Baptist College and then on, his, on to Fisk, a, a, a credible college in Nashville, one of the, along with Morehouse, one of the great HBCUs in this country. And Warnock went to Morehouse College as well. I think that we cannot overstate the importance of understanding responsibility and, and legacy among the traditions that these folks learned and the ways in which they, they have carried it forward. The representation of the fight for justice and of African Americans in particular. Stacey Abrams was born in the Mississippi Delta, the poorest part of this country, or one of the poorest parts. I've had the, the I'll call it the honor to go to the Mississippi Delta and see some of the incredible strength there among the population there. And uh, one of our folks who meets us there, one of our local partners, um, has said that uh, they have a phrase that Mississippi is the south of the south. And the Delta is the Mississippi of Mississippi. It's just uh, tragic poverty, racism, the legacy of, of enslavement, sharecropping, incarceration, just present everywhere. But it's also a place that has brought out great, great leadership from Fannie Lou Hamer, to where Stokely Carmichael gave his first black power speech. And Stacey Abrams' parents were both ministers. She eventually makes her way to Atlanta, goes to Spelman College, which is the, the female college that is the intellectual equivalent of Morehouse College. Spelman, right there in Atlanta, as part of the Morehouse, Spelman, Clark, Atlanta, uh, campuses there, and she goes to Spelman and then goes on to Yale to get a law degree. Comes back, joins, uh, gets elected to the state house in Georgia, becomes the minority leader, the first black female minority leader, runs for governor in 2018, probably won the state, but there were, uh, uh, 150,000 votes, v voters who had not been able to register. Their registrations were held up because of claims about signature matching. And she loses uh, by about just over 50,000 votes to Brian Kemp. But she doesn't quit. She forms the organization Fair Fight, which came on the heels of a, another organization she founded, New Georgia Project, both of which we work with in Georgia. And Abrams set out to fight for voting justice around this country. In 2010, when she became minority leader of the uh, Georgia House of Representatives, she uh, went around the country telling people to, to invest in Georgia, and she had a plan. And she talks about that in many places, about traveling around the country to raise money, to raise visibility, to raise hope. And that plan has come to fruition in Georgia. And Abrams and Warnock 
and Asaf are the distillation of <clears throat> that vision, that moral leadership. And today, as we fight for the right to vote in America, they are at the forefront. They are the people that I fall in behind. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not at all interested in assessing the value of <clears throat> their strategies as I think about them. I'm not the one to give those careful uh, assessment. I am here to be inspired and to do work. And they have proven their wisdom, their strength, their moral vision. And I am moved by it. I am moved by it. Reverend Raphael Warnock gave his first speech in the Senate on Wednesday. The first speech is a big deal. People come around and listen. And at the end of that speech, Warnock said that he sees as a minister, a man of faith, he said, democracy as the political enactment, political enactment of a spiritual idea that everybody has dignity and worth. And that our job is to enact a system that recognizes that and honors that. He talks about the spark of the divine that is present in all humans. Man, that, that, that sounds to me like straight from Martin Luther King Jr. through John Lewis. And he calls vi uh, voting the most powerful nonviolent tool that we have in a democracy. Well, <clears throat> from King through Lewis to, to Warnock, joined by the female leadership that has always been there in the movement. The Diane Nashes, the Fannie Lou Hamers, the Dorothy Cottons, the Ella Bakers, the Coretta Scott Kings, they have always been there, these uh, black women. But now Abrams is getting the full visibility and attention and, and praise and support and following that she that she and all black women deserve. We have our new leaders. We know who's going to take us forward. It is Abrams and Warnock. And they, the, the, the parallels and the in, intellectual and moral foundations across these people, King to Lewis to Abrams and Warnock, are so strong. And they, of course, are all rooted in, operating out of Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia. We know who our leaders are. We know the work to be done. We just need to do it. We just need to do it. There is no, there is no excuse 
for not stepping forward and doing our work right now to fight for voting justice. On our advocacy page, we have phone banks uh, going, and today we launch a brand new part of our advocacy this year, Direct to Senator Contacts, where we are calling and tweeting at senators all over this country who we think either already do support and just need to push hard, 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 or potentially will support H.R. 1 in the Senate and getting rid of the filibuster if needed. This direct to senator uh, contact is the easiest thing we do at Common Power. All you got to do is make a phone call or if you're on Twitter, send a tweet. We have provided scripts to, to send. We have the contact info. If you want to do this, sign up for our team advocacy. Sign up. You'll get regular updates from me. And then if you so wish, you can join our phone banks, too, which are distinctly uh, more like two-hour-long calling sessions to contact voters in key states around this country. The work is easy. It just takes time. It takes commitment. It takes a belief that this is an ethical responsibility for all of us as citizens. We know where we're going and we know who's leading us and we know what needs to be done. It's March 21st, 2021. Let's go.